Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Brave New Teaching. Today's episode is one that we have been kind of bouncing around as an idea for a little while. We are going to talk about straight up English language arts teaching strategy. Today's is going to be about teaching close reading. And close reading is a great tool of the ELA teacher to just keep in your pocket to use at will, basically. And I know Amanda uses it a lot in her classroom. I use close reading all the time in my classroom. And so we're going to hone in on a specific skill with close reading today. I know when I first heard about close reading, I was really intimidated by this strategy. So our hope today is that we can kind of break it down for you into a very user-friendly, teacher-friendly, student-friendly way that you can take our ideas and transform them, transform them into your own digital or live classroom next year. Yes, absolutely. So yes, we are hoping that this will become, or we are planning for this to become a series of different strategy-based episodes. So make sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode so we can tell you how to leave us some feedback. And uh, without any further ado, let's get started. Here we go. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Okay. 
Okay, Amanda, are you ready to nerd out real hard about close reading? I honestly, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this. I was talking on Instagram this morning to my crew, and um, I feel like Brave New Teaching very much started as a philosophical journey for us and sharing a lot about our behind the scenes, how we think education works. Um, but I'm really excited that we're taking this little sidestep branch into methods and instructional technique. I think this is something I, my younger self would have loved to have had. Oh, absolutely. When like younger teacher Marie was too embarrassed to ask for this kind of help, didn't really know what questions because I didn't know what I didn't know. And there are things that seem so obvious to veteran teachers that I just like didn't weren't even in like the scope of my realm of reality. So I'm excited to talk about these things. We will continue with our philosophical discussions, of course, because there's really no getting the two of us off of a philosophical train once we get started. Toot toot, you know? <laughs> Did you just say toot toot? Of course uh, I said toot toot. Podcast. Yes. We're trying to make people take us seriously, Marie. You shouldn't. They shouldn't. That's, no, they their, shouldn't. that's their rookie mistake. Don't take us seriously, but listen to us as very highly trained educators. Hey, let's talk about close reading. Well, specifically. I <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is, this is, it's funny that we, you know, we guys know that we're just, we're silly. We're real people. And I can tell you like my very short story about close reading. I remember when I first was introduced to this strategy, it was something that just absolutely overwhelmed me thinking, oh my gosh, like I have to stand in front of kids and be an expert on a piece of text in my field. Like I was like, oh, I really need to like show up and know my stuff right now. Okay. Okay. What if I don't know something and they know something and you know, there's a lot of panic involved. Did you ever have that Marie? Um, I had that. Here's the funny thing is I had that imposter syndrome happening with like the text as a whole. So like when close reading came into my realm, I was like, oh my God, why have I, why have I not been doing this the whole time? This is so much better. Like I had the opposite that you had. Like, that's so funny. I couldn't keep the scope of the whole entire novel or whatever the work is that we're talking about in my grasp at all times. And that would make me nervous that there would be something a kid would reference and I wouldn't know it immediately. And they would be like, you're an imposter, you're a fraud. But like looking at something like a close read, I'd be able to discover it along with them. And there's something I'm much more comfortable with, with that. Cause I don't remember stuff. Like I don't remember references. So yeah, so close reading kind of came to our department through the vehicle of um, our students aren't reading was kind of the battle we were fighting at the time. And now we fight that battle a lot, but it's, for me, it's evolved over time. Um, in this initial phase, what was happening is we were assigning novels and students were not really reading them, which again is still a problem that we have. But we had some training and some work and basically the theory about close reading that came across our path was, it's okay. It's okay that they're not reading. What our job is to do is to create an atmosphere in our classrooms that is so on fire about what's going on in the book that the kids can't help but want to be part of it. And for the kids who still don't want to be part of it, our job is still to make sure that every class period is full of something rich and educational for them and not necessarily 
dependent on whatever we assigned them for reading homework. So enter in close reading. So a close reading lesson means the students only need to be experts in the passage that we're going to put in front of them in that moment. So for a kid who's maybe behind or struggling, um, we're, we're, I'm going to do my example a little bit later on The Great Gatsby. So we're into chapters, you know, three, four, five, six, whatever, and they haven't been kept coming along. Well, they have been in my classroom for our close read on chapter one, our close read in chapter three. So they have experience with these moments in the text, and that is a game changer for that student because they do have that to hold on to. It demystifies things for a lot of kiddos. And a lot of kiddos who have a hard time, maybe they are reading, but they're, they're struggling a bit and they're having a hard time tracking what it is that they're reading. I know a lot of kids go, oh, I hate annotations because they don't know what to look for. So they end up just like coloring a page. And a close reading a really well done close reading lesson or demonstration or activity, like whatever you want to call it, however you want to take that strategy and go with it, um, that can be a game changer, like you're saying, for a lot of students, even the really bright ones who sometimes get a little bit lost in the higher level texts or who just have a lot going on. This helps them hone in in a really simple way to focus on the plot, the story, whatever it is happening with the actual piece of text that you're looking at, but also it helps them really develop and reinforce strategies and skills as a reader. I think that's the key word that you just said, Marie, is focus. The whole goal of a close read is to focus on one, maybe two things, but really to focus on something tiny because the more narrow and the more close the conversation is, all of a sudden things are revealed later, right? Things kind of fall into place after you focused on something really, really narrow. So let's just kind of jump into defining. When, when I say close reading, what I mean in terms of the strategy is you are choosing a author's craft skill that you want to teach. So something like diction, something like syntax, something like using metaphor, something like using uh, rhetorical strategies. You're picking something specific that you want to teach the way an author is using it. So we're thinking about a mentor text. You might also have a thematic concept in your reading that you want to highlight. So again, in Gatsby, it might be something in relation to dreams or the downfall of dreams. And I want kids to zoom in on that moment. So as a teacher, your job is, and this is probably the hardest part, is to isolate a very small chunk of text. Marie told me for this, I needed five sentences. I broke that rule, but only because you'll see why later. Um, I have a paragraph. It happens to be F. Scott Fitzgerald, so it's kind of hard to do five sentences of his. Absolutely. <laughs> and especially because we're going to focus on syntax, I really wanted to include the whole thing, but isolating a small chunk of text that demonstrates either that skill, that author's craft skill, or that theme that you want to look at, um, and then designing a handout that actually has the text on the page. You want to think about this lesson and your series of close read lessons as at the end of the novel, your student who didn't read the book has eight paragraphs that you analyze together in their hands so that they're ready to do whatever that summative task is because then they can demonstrate what they've learned how to do whether or not they've read every single page of the book and that's okay. Yeah, because once again, we want to focus on the fact that we are prepping our students with skills that they are learning, not necessarily content knowledge. And I know that's a major shift 
for a lot of us who have been teaching for a while to think, well, no, it's the content, it's the novel, it's the text. But really, the way that we're talking about this, we're looking at a shift in focusing on skills as a reader, skills as a writer, skills in these different ways. So we are going to be showing you today talking about two different texts and the ways that we would use them within our classroom. And like Amanda was saying, the hardest part of putting together a close reading lesson on the teacher standpoint is isolating a small, like manageable chunk of text. I've done this so many times with uh, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. That is part of our sophomore year repertoire. And Lord of the Flies is so nuanced and so symbolic and so layered that it is really, really hard as the teacher to isolate a tiny little chunk of dialogue or a tiny little chunk within a larger paragraph. But it's so essential to be able to get into one little piece where kids can dig into it and we can really show them concrete examples and it's not overwhelming where we're looking at multiple pages or even one whole page of text. Um, the focus, like we were saying, it's always going to be focus. Sidebar, when I was a camp counselor, when I was in college, I had a colleague who used to yell, kids, what's the F word? And they would yell, focus, and it just scared everybody. <laughs> I just had to leave that in here. Hey, Amanda, do you want to talk about the author's craft skill that we are going to focus on What's today? The What's the F I, word? And then seven-year-olds going, focus. And you would see these adults like, oh, okay. Shaking. <laughs> oh, it was so funny. I do. So for this episode, what we want to do is focus on an author's craft skill that you might choose to focus on as well at some point during your year. Um, so we're going to look at syntax today. And this is a hard one for students to wrap their head around. Um, but it's kind of a beautiful one for us to introduce to students and kind of touch at different points during the year with different texts because all of a sudden kids start to see, oh, that's cool. The sentence structure of this passage means something more than it just is functioning as a sentence. Um, for someone like me too, who doesn't super, I don't adore grammar instruction. I don't actually do any of it. Um, I do mentor text kind of stuff, but this is exactly where that the purpose behind knowing what a simple sentence is and a compound sentence is comes into the light where it's, it's meaningful. So we're going to talk about syntax. Let's get started. So for those of you okay. teachers who are like, okay, uh, okay. I don't know if I've ever taught it. Let's, let's, let's kind of break it down. So I kind of have a touchstone couple of bullet points. So I would say that authors use syntax to enhance their message, which would be like a nonfiction way of using it or to create a reading experience that's mimicking the mood or tension in a plot moment or something happening in the story. So we see this in a lot of different ways and um, that's really, really important. So there are a few cornerstone syntactical moves that I kind of keep in my back pocket. Um, one of those being intentional run-on sentences. Um, those tend to evoke a sense of character's confusion or disorientation, things like that. Um, even having kids look at the frequency of punctuation and sentence types, there's no need for them to be labeling anything, but they can tell you, oh, there's a lot of periods or, oh, there aren't very many of them. Or, oh, look at all of the commas. You know, they can make pretty basic observations that you can then 
transform into a more sophisticated conversation. So some things that a lot of kids will, will pick up on are things like simple sentences followed by a really lengthy, compound, complex sentence. Um, things like that are affecting the pacing and the energy of the moment. Um, and even the use of commas sometimes will slow down the reading experience and add more and more detail to a moment. Um, a couple of things that I like to focus on with syntax in my classroom. Um, we do a lot of focus on dialogue and character dialogue or character thought processes when we're talking specifically about like literature and that reading experience and getting to know a character. And so we'll look at like, this is something I'll talk about in my example today. We'll look at sentence length and the use of sentence length in order to manipulate a character's thought process or develop the character and like build that context and that sort of a thing. So let's go ahead and look at a couple of examples. So I'm going to take you guys through a passage from The Great Gatsby. Um, this passage is after Myrtle has been killed. Spoiler alert! <laughs> guys, Myrtle gets run over by a car. Spoiler, spoiler! It's not who you thought it was. Okay, dun, so... Dun, dun. <laughs> Um, I actually want to share the passage with you first, and then I'll kind of walk you through um, the goal I would have with teaching this passage, uh, why I picked it, what I noticed, and then a quick lesson breakdown, and then Marie will do the exact same thing with hers. So this passage uh, begins, Myrtle Wilson's body wrapped in a blanket, and then in another blanket, as though she suffered from a chill in the hot night, lay on a work table by the wall, and Tom, with his back to us, was bending over it motionless. Next to him stood a motorcycle policeman taking down names with much sweat and correction in a little book. At first, I couldn't find the source of the high, groaning words that echoed clamorously through the bare garage. Dash. Big dash. <laughs> then I saw Wilson standing on the raised threshold of his office, swaying back and forth and holding to the doorposts with both hands. Some man was talking to him in a low voice and attempting from time to time to lay a hand on his shoulder, but Wilson neither heard nor saw. His eyes would drop slowly from the swinging light to the laden table by the wall and then jerk back to the light again, and he gave out incessantly his high, horrible call. Okay, so of course you're going to need to go to bravenewteaching.com for the show notes today because... There's a lot here that we're going to go through pretty quickly for the sanity of this, <laughs> this podcast episode. Um, so I promise everything will be there. If you feel like I went too fast, it'll be there. Um, so the first thing I want to just share with you guys is the goal. So what is the goal of this passage? Well, we already know that we're framing this in terms of an author's craft skill, which is syntax. So what I wrote was that students will be able to identify the ways in which Fitzgerald's use of syntax contributes to the plot moment of Myrtle's death. So in other words, the questions are going to be things like, how does syntax impact the mood of the scene? How does the syntax reveal the character's reactions in the scene? Things like that is what I'm going to be kind of digging and asking the kids to find as we're having this discussion. So I chose this passage because I think the emotional intensity is really rich. Um, it's also not a difficult passage to read. Um, sometimes that's dangerous with close readings. We choose passages that the plot moment is confusing and then we're also trying to teach a skill on top of it, and it's really hard. Here, it's very clear. There are people standing by Myrtle's body, and then there's Wilson swaying and crying and, and, you know, in the scene as well. So that's not too hard. So I feel like kids can see through the plot to get to that um, artistic level of our conversation. 
Um, and I think it's also likely a passage that they would have skimmed over while reading it for homework. So that to me is really important. Um, it also has a variety of syntactical moves that we can talk about and not just one. So for a lesson, I like there to be a, multiple, a multitude of things kids can find. So the things that I notice in this passage, again, you'll have to take a look at it on our show notes. Um, but the use of the dash to me is really impressive. Um, the content before the dash and after are vastly different. And in Gatsby, we talk a lot about juxtaposition and how things are side by side in a world where they don't belong. Um, so there's, there's the, um, peace and there's the kind of the quietness of her dead body, um, kind of the creepiness of the chilly night. And then on the other side of the dash is Wilson in mourning and just swaying and crying and making all of this noise. So there's really cool things to talk about there. Um, the use of commas, I think is really powerful. Again, something that kids can definitely talk about. Um, it kind of creates this feeling of a moment lingering in time, which is what I can imagine it must feel like to see the person that you love the most get hit by a car and to find out that she's died. Um, the use of a positive phrases is really powerful here and then another great talking point with students. Um, and just that opening complex sentence with Myrtle Wilson in the blanket, like it's a hot night, but she looks like she's cold and there's a lot there to deal with uh, our commas and, and phrasing and stuff like that. So I've, I've dumped a lot on you you can kind of pick and choose the things that you'd want to focus on. But I think for me, a loose lesson plan would look like this five steps. One, we do our bell work. Our bell work is a little bit different every day, but I always start with the same routine. Two, I'd move into a very short mini lesson. What is syntax? The things that we've already, you and I on this podcast that we've already talked about. <laughs> and then the third and fourth steps are really the guts of the lesson. Um, it would be modeling first. So step three would be to model read that passage out loud, do a think aloud. What do I notice? Don't worry about the kids being able to identify in a positive phrase. That doesn't mean anything. It just needs to be casual conversation about what do you notice? Uh, what's going on? It can be plot. It can be syntax. It can be whatever on that first read. Um, but then as you read again and start noticing things out loud with students, that's where the learning and the magic starts to happen. So I would then point out one of the things that really stands out to me and talk through it. The next point would be uh, step number four would be where students now have the chance to practice. So a great way to do that with a, a you know, one class, you know, for me, a one class period is only 50 minutes. So at that point, I like to give kids a solid 10, 15 minutes. Like, let's do a think pair share, you know, read through the passage again, annotate it yourself. Look at syntax. What do you see? Pair up with your partner. Now you guys talk about it. You're, and, I, and by the way, I use timers for all of this. It keeps kids like moving and just making guesses. It's okay for them to guess. Um, if you just kind of stop and say, what do you notice? There's going to be crickets. I guarantee you. <laughs> So think pair share is a great way to go. I've also had kids just kind of pair up or go into a small group with a timer. Um, you could assign kids specific things to look for. Say, okay, you guys over there, I want you to pay attention to pacing. You guys over there, I want you to pay attention to the dash. You guys over there, I want you to pay attention to the different types of sentences. You guys over there, I want you to look at commas. Like you could be really specific. You could be really general. There's lots of ways to go. But definitely I would go bell work, mini lesson, model, student practice and then close it on up, bring everybody back together at the end, pull it back together to that bigger question of, so what's the effect? 
So there's this cool dash, there are these cool sentences. So how does this tell us something about this plot moment? How does it create mood? What does it show us about Wilson? What does it show us about Myrtle, uh, the relationship between the Valley of Ashes and West and East Egg, you know, whatever that might be, that's the closing. We want to get to that point. Um, and so I've just walked you through your next observation lesson. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. So I am going to do the same exact type of a thing as Amanda just went through for you with the great Gatsby, part of the canon. And I'm going to flip that a little bit. And we are going to look at a pretty contemporary piece of YA literature. This is um, from the exposition of With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo. And if you haven't read it, I would say pick it up. If you're a pretty quick reader, it's a pretty quick read because it is true YA, but it is very rich and nuanced and it's just really good. So this is a point in the story where we're still getting to know the characters. We're still getting to know the context of the plot and everything that's going on. And our protagonist, Imani, is decompressing from one of her days and her senior year of high school in her kitchen. And we know already, just a little context for you, that she got pregnant her freshman year of high school. She has a little girl who's uh, just under two, I believe, at this point, And she lives at home with her grandmother. So... It reads, I turn on the TV to PBS and sit baby girl on the couch with some toys and picture books, take my shoes off and walk into the kitchen. The fridge is stocked. Boyla must have gone grocery shopping this morning after dropping baby girl off. We have iceberg lettuce, yuck in parentheses, and bell peppers, yum in parentheses, ground beef, onions. An idea begins taking root. I pull out the ingredients I need and rinse off my cutting board. And scene. So what am I looking for? I should have gone through my goal before this, but that's okay. Um, I'm looking that students are going to identify the ways in which our author, Acevedo, uses syntax to contribute to the development of this character because we're getting to know her. This is uh, from her perspective, the entire novel. And so how are we getting into the little layers of who she is as a person. Um, and what I know, or why this particular passage is because it's the exposition, like I said, we're getting to know our characters, we're still diving into it all. And in a very short amount of text, we are able to see and feel so much about who she is at her core, how her experiences in her you know, relatively short life thus far have shaped her into a person she is and into who she's still becoming. And so what I notice about this text is first and foremost, sentence length. And once again, go to the show notes so you can see this in person. The sentence length is relatively short. Most of the sentences are extremely simple. Some of them technically incomplete and they are each a separate little pocket of a thought. And so for me, that brings the reader right into this exact moment. We are right there in the moment. Nothing else in the world is really going on other than where she is in her moment. Um, a lot of the notes that you're going to hear me saying are, they all relate to her age and where she's at maturity-wise in comparison to her peers. <laughs> so there's also um, a presentness of time and energy where she's like right there in that moment. There's a use of a dash that happens. Um, she says, the fridge is stocked. Big dash. Boyla must have gone grocery shopping this morning after dropping baby girl off. Um, that to me shows that this character's thought process is always moving and always filling in context and always thinking about others. And I do not say this in a disparaging way against our students, our teenagers that we're talking about, but they're not really thinking about much other than themselves. When they are thinking about other people, it is often, and this is developmentally, you know, a, a part of their process of being teenagers. When they're thinking about others, it is often 
how they are looking in light of other people, right? Like it's like how they reflect. It's definitely self-centered because that is an emotional uh, stage that many of our teenagers are at, but our protagonist is not there. She is thinking about everybody else because she's a mom. Um, and it sets her aside. A lot of kids when they come home from school are going to look in the refrigerator and either see that it's stocked or it isn't stocked, not think about how and when it was stocked and who took care of it and, and the responsibility behind it. The other thing that I notice in this text um, is the use of parentheses. When she starts listing off iceberg lettuce in parentheses, yuck, bell peppers, yum. That still brings me back to her age in a very sweet and kid-like way because, I mean, my own kids, uh, I like olives, but they're not my favorite. And you're like, I didn't, I didn't ask. Um, cool, cool. Kids still do that, even at 17, 18 years old. Like, oh, yeah, I've had, I didn't like it. And you're like, I didn't ask if you liked it, sweetie. No one even asked if you ate it before. So there's that still, mo that like presentness of like, this is the food I like and this is the food I don't like. So even though she is so mature and caring for her two-year-old and, and living with her grandmother and they're, and they're like running this household together, obviously, and she's thinking about how and when the fridge was stocked, she's also like, yuck, iceberg lettuce. Like it's such a duality of her personality. And so those are the things that step out to me, that jump off the page to me. And so when I start really going through this as a lesson with my students, I would start with a bell ringer. Absolutely. Always start with a bell ringer. And we probably would be looking at sentence types or like different structures of sentences um, so that we have some labels and some vocabulary to use in our next piece, which would be a mini lesson. My lesson looks exactly like Amanda's, let's be honest with ourselves. So I go from a bell ringer about sentence types into a mini lesson about what is syntax. Once again, it's always building context and background and giving our students tools of vocabulary and ideas with which they can talk about these things, right? It's half the time, it's not that they don't have the thoughts, it's that our students don't have the tools to use in discussing these concepts that we're talking about. Then I would go into modeling. I would do a read aloud. Um, I might even say, think to yourself or jot down on, on your paper what you notice about sentence types, what you notice about what we've been talking about with syntax. And then I would do a straight up think aloud. Here's what Mrs. Morris notices. And this is where I would use a doc cam or take the text and have it projected up on the screen and just be scribbling or on the whiteboard and be scribbling straight over the projected text, whatever works so that students can see exactly what I'm doing. Sometimes I shy away from my doc cam because I don't like sitting in one place. I like being able to run around the board in the front, but that's just my spazzy energy. Um, so all, all the while thinking aloud, the things I'm noticing, annotating, maybe asking for some feedback from students as they get ideas, but really just modeling exactly what I'm doing as a reader without getting too specific. That's why it has to be such a short text. If you get too into it, they're like, cool, I don't care anymore. Um, then for student practice, what I like to do, because this is a pretty approachable text, it's YA. I would then have students pair up just with their elbow partner or, you know, some sort of established community within the classroom and say, dive into the reading we've done thus far, or if they're doing their own reading with a different text, find a passage like this and do the same process that I just did with a partner and go through and see what you can glean about your character, about this character that either uh, reinforces a previous analysis 
or that refutes a previous analysis and see how that helps you further inform the complexity of a character. And like, we'll talk about layers and nuance and blah, 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 blah. So that would be the student practice. And then we would do some sort of a share out and maybe have students model and bring up what they've done on their paper or just show us and talk to us about the analysis and what was reinforced or what was refuted through finding a different part of the text to look through. Um, And then if I'm feeling really fancy, I might have them practice with doing a little bit of like creative writing, but that is a podcast for a different day. (laughs) That is. I didn't know what Marie, so I think to bring it all home, like making sure that this lesson closes, I think is, is the key. So in what I try to teach my students when they're writing is how, why, and so what, right? So Mm -hmm. how does the author do it? Well, he's using syntax. Okay. Why does he do it? Well, he's trying to create a mood that's reflective of this moment in time. And so what? Well, that's where the kids can actually explore, right? The, the different nuances that you're talking about. So you guys, this was a lightning round podcast episode. Absolutely. (laughs) And, And this process and getting good at teaching close reading is really hard. I screw it up all the time, but I think some of the cornerstone things that you guys should walk away from this podcast episode knowing is one, like practice makes perfect. I mean, the more you try it, the better off you are. Um, when I was listening to you, Marie, I was reminded of what we were saying at the beginning of the episode, which is even if I haven't read that whole book, I will never forget that moment of her looking through the refrigerator, trying to find ingredients to feed her daughter. Like it was so it's so permanent in my memory already. And I'm not reading this in your class. Like it's just, it's there. And that's going to be so powerful for kids. This is, who is this for? It's for, it's for kids. Our kids. It's and for I think, and, and what we really do want to drive home too, is that it, it, it doesn't have to be hard. You could do this in 15 minutes. You could do this in an hour and a half. Like, you know, it, it, you can tailor close reading lessons to make them fit mm-hmm. you, your curriculum, your class schedule, all of that. And to really just use this as a tool and a teacher's repertoire to be able to meet our students where we're at and really help them grow as readers and as learners and critical thinkers and all of that good stuff. Amen. If I could talk to young Amanda, I would say, listen, don't stress out about the kids knowing every single plot point. Like, I feel like that's exactly how I tried to teach Caesar. I tried to teach Mockingbird by every single day saying, okay, guys, let's talk about chapter five. And then we would just talk about, oh my God, it was awful. And you know what? They already figured out on Sparknotes. Like it was already there. This, this would point, have been so much better. Let's pull out Sparknotes and do a close read of this person's analysis <laughs> of what they, you know what I mean? Like, let's just start debunking it all. Once again, a podcast for another day. But like we said before, make sure you head to the show notes on this one, guys. There is some stuff that we left out for the purpose of time, things we glossed over. And please, please, please head over to iTunes, leave us a review. If you are liking this, that's how we know to keep making more stuff like this. And find us on Instagram at Brave New Teaching so that you can request some texts or some skills that you would like us to talk through. We nerd out and we love this stuff. We also want to hear your stories and you're from your classroom. When you guys head over to bravenewteaching.com, you'll see in our kind of like our tabs, our little drop down menu, we're always looking to feature teachers in their real lives and their classrooms and their stories of what's going on. So we'd love to hear from you guys at any point that you feel like you've got something to share. Absolutely. And until we meet again, guys, thank you so much for stopping in and giving us a listen. We will see you next time.